Thank you, Amy. Reading out of Joel. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're in the midst of our series in the Minor Prophets. Uh, George preached out of Amos this winter on uh, social justice, and it's really powerful. We're in the third week here in the book of Joel, looking at suffering, and then we'll be doing four weeks. George will come back and do four weeks on Habakkuk um, to wrap up this, this series. And as we're, as we're in the midst of the prophets, it's helpful to be reminded on just the point of all of this and what the role of the prophets are and how they function, how they function in Scripture, how they function for us, why we do this, why we read them. And the, the point of the prophets... And as you hear it read, especially large chunks, you kind of really get the picture of the prophets and, and how they function. They're, they're calls. They, they're wake-up calls to Israel. The prophets are these poetic, strong language, this way of reimagining reality that would wake us up, that would call Israel out, that would make us look at our sin, become, have it become real to us, to look at the, to kind of see that our own ignorance and where we're blinded to. And as we've seen so far, within Amos, we, the call to look at injustice honestly, to see our role in it, to see what we're called to do. And here in Joel, we see this powerful call to wake up to suffering, to really what it means to have pain and suffering, what it means to suffer those things, and how we respond to God in it. And the role of the prophet is really to bring us back to God. They're not really intended to teach. And as we've been going through Joel, right, you have these incredible poetic pictures of God's judgment. In chapter 1, it was God's judgment and the the plague of the locusts coming and devouring and eating everything. In chapter 2, it was this army that's going to come and destroy them. And it's really meant to emotionally spur Israel on, to really wake you up because you don't see anything going on you don't think anything is wrong right you don't know and and boy that's us we don't see so much of even our own sin let alone the sins of others in the culture i have a hard time seeing my own suffering let alone seeing the sufferings of others and sometimes instead of needing like direct instruction because the prophets don't give you anything new in terms of instruction The prophets are just drawing you back to the Pentateuch, back to the first five books of the Bible. It's their corrective for believers. It's pointing us forward to Christ. But the prophets are, they're worded and they're designed in such a way as to really stir us, to stir our emotions in such a way that we want to find the truth. That I don't want to sit in this reality anymore. I don't want to be blind to the truth of God's word. I don't want to be blind to the culture and to what's really going on. I want to clearly see it. I want to see it rightly. I want to respond rightly to God and to his promises and his instructions. And as we see Joel, Joel has really been calling us to see suffering, pain and suffering, its various forms. And already in the book, we saw there was the suffering that's caused by a plague of locusts. It's not a judgment of God, but it's a harbinger. It's a forbearance. It's showing what's to come, but it's this just horrible national tragedy, devastation that's hit them. In chapter 2, it's the impending army that's going to destroy them and God's judgment upon them and this suffering that comes from it. So we're, we're to see suffering in various forms. We're to see it and to not run from it. And we're just supposed to honestly approach it. And that's been the response throughout the book of Joel. The, the teaching is pretty clear. It's calling us back to what the Pentateuch has told us. And it's an honest lament an honest weeping in the face of our suffering, and an honest worship of God. But the struggle with this, 
really, these are hard topics to talk about, to preach about, or even to hear about, right? Because what's hard about that, it's hard to honestly weep and honestly worship. That's not a fun thing to do, because how am I supposed to do it? How can I be honest with my pain and not be overwhelmed by it? How can I be honest with someone else's pain and not have it overwhelm me and draw me deeper into depression and to sadness and despair? I don't want to look at my suffering, right, if I'm honest with myself. I don't want to look at other people's suffering. I'd rather see it briefly and then move my... I I don't want to be with someone in their suffering because it's overwhelming to join someone in suffering. It's overwhelming to, to suffer, and I, I don't want to honestly look at it. How, and then the second piece to this, I mean, how can I honestly worship God in my suffering without becoming callous, without becoming distant from God, without, or even worse, becoming self-righteous in my suffering, and this noble martyr who judges everyone else? How can we, how can I truly trust in a worship of God who would allow horrible things to happen in our lives. Not just the minor things, but just horrible, horrible things. How can I do this? How can I honestly approach my suffering without it overwhelming me? And how can I honestly worship God without it just being going through this cold, religious, going through the motions, trying to appease God and appearing like I should be someone who I'm not? What hope is there? in our pain and in our suffering. And what we find here in Joel is a powerful picture of the hope that Israel has and the hope that we have. Because we're a people that are really driven by hope. I mean, you see this everywhere. Everyone has hope in something. You have to have a hope. It's what we run on. It's what gets me through the day, what gets me through the years, what gets me through anything is that we have a hope, a hope of something that we're looking for. And this this hope that Joel gives to Israel in the midst of their pain and their suffering, current, the locusts have already eaten everything, and future, that judgment and this army that's coming, he gives them this picture of hope that is just life-changing. The hope of a restoration Right, the hope that everything bad will be undone. The hope that everything that they've been longing for will be restored to them. Because if you look at that passage, I mean, look at this passage again. If you have a Bible, right, here in chapter 2, I mean, these promises of God are really startling. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable promises. You will be satisfied. There will be a day in which you will eat and be satisfied. You will never long again. You will finally be filled up. You will never feel that aching void again of, I wish I had something. I need a little more. I don't have it. No, one day you will be full and you will be satisfied. You will no longer be a reproach. People will no longer look at you in your pain and your suffering, and say, oh, I'm so sorry for you. You will never be a reproach in the eyes of anyone again, but you will be glorious and beautiful, desirous. People won't flee from you again. God will give an abundant rain and an overflowing harvest 
or that image, like, like in Amos as well, of this abundance of the blessings of God. Everything, there will not be a shortage, but there will be an abundance of blessings in your life. Abundance of things that you will, you, you can't even imagine the amount of blessing that God is going to lavish upon you. That he will restore, right, that phrase, I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Everything that you lost will come back. Everything that you thought was gone forever will come back to you. Those wasted years, right, that the locusts have eaten will all be restored. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And that he will pour out his spirit on his people. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are unfathomable promises that God is giving in the midst of the pain and the suffering that the people are going through. Right? Because you really see these two big promises that are in there. One, the removal and the judgment of their oppressor, their taker. Right, the, 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 lo- the, the locusts in the army will be taken away. It, I mean, many of us, right, cause, and that was last week, we talked about this, the various types of suffering that we're all in. For many of us, we feel, right, like someone has hurt us, has betrayed us, has taken from us, has, right, devoured those good years of our life, have hurt us. They will be taken away from you. It'll be removed. That will never happen again. You will never need to live in fear of losing out, of having someone hurt you, those who are the victims of injustice in Amos. There will be no more fear because the oppressor will be removed far away from you. And in the next chapter, we're going to read about his judgment that's coming too. And then the second piece to this big promise, not just the removal of what we fear, but also just this filling up, this being abundantly full, satisfied and restored, a fullness of life, an overflowing of the blessings, everything that was lost being restored to the people. And when you think about who this is written to, Right, it, it makes the promises even more powerful, right? I mean, because we hear these things, we hear the promises of God, and like that's nice. But when you're in the midst of suffering, when you're in the midst of this, because this is a people who have lost almost everything. The locusts came through for years, because that's what they do. It's not just this one thing. And the, anyway, they've lost everything. They've, they've lost it all, and they're sitting with this impending doom, knowing that Assyria, this, northern, this nation, which they're watching, just you know, 20 miles to the north, they see them coming slow. They know they're going to be destroyed. Like, this is a people who have lost everything and are going to lose what little they had left. Their very lives are going to be lost very, very soon. And they know this. And God gives them this hope to a people who are suffering and who are expecting more suffering, a beautiful picture of what is to come. It must have been almost impossible to believe it. How could this possibly be true? How can I hope in this when I know what's coming? When I know that in this life, 
in the short term even, I'm going to be losing everything. My children will be taken from me. My home will be destroyed. How, why, 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 I don't even want to hear this promise of a future glory or a future hope of things being restored. Because in the midst of suffering, it's, it's very difficult to hear words of hope. Unless it's, unless it's immediate. Unless, I hear, unless you're telling me there's hope right now today, I don't know if I want to hear it. And so the prophet really calls us out to examine our own life and our own suffering and what it is that we hope for, what it is that we long for. The prophet is calling out Israel and what do they long for, what do they hope for, and is doing the same to us. Because if you examine your life and you think about your life, your suffering, what do you believe about the future? What do you believe is your future? What do you believe is the future of this world? What's the ending to the story, your story and the world's story? Because there's really just kind of two options for that, right, which we've probably all encountered. Either this is it, right? This life is the life that we've given. This is the life that we have. At the end of all of this, right, the sun eventually is going to burn out. Life will go away, and then that'll be it. So either you've got a good life now, great, enjoy it, hold on to it, or you have a bad life, we're sorry for you, let's try to make it as good as we can, because this is it, and that'll be the end of it. Well, that's, that's the view of most of the world, that this is it, that's all there is. And if this life is it, then this is the best it will get, right? Do you believe that? Even as a believer, even as a Christian, it's easy to believe that. You're like, this is it, this is the best it's going to be, especially when you've got a good life right? I love my family. I love my wife. I love my house. It's easy to believe, though, that this is it. This is as good as it gets. Are you holding on tightly to this because you're enjoying it? Overcome by anxiousness and fear, afraid of those locusts who will come and devour because I don't want it to get worse. This is the high point And if I lose anything, I've lost everything. Or, have you given up hope of anything good coming? Right? This is the kind of path of disillusionment. Or you say, look, I've lost a lot. I have been hurt and betrayed by many people. I know it's fool's goal to hope for something good to come. The most I can hope for, right, is just to get through. And if I stop hoping... Actually, then I can actually start to live. Look, if I don't expect things, then I won't be disappointed. You've resigned yourself to your suffering. Do you only anticipate more and more suffering, more and more pain until the sweet release of death, and then you hope to get to paradise one day? Well, the text indicates that there's another option for us. Right? Scripture is always pulling us to that other option, that this is not it, that there is actually a new heaven and a new earth that's waiting for us. Where there will be no more pain, where we will have new bodies, where there will be no fear or unfulfilled longings, where everything bad that has ever happened won't, not just won't happen again, but will actually be undone, will turn into good. 
It will work backwards on that day where there will be a literal hope, not just a symbolic hope, because many look at this and say, this is just symbolism. Well, that's nonsense to give symbolism to Israel in the midst of this suffering that they're going through. This has to be literal or it's meaningless. Don't give me a symbolic hope when I'm about to die. I want a literal hope. And Scripture is giving us this literal hope of one day everything being made right, that every wrong I've committed and that others have committed will be made right, that everything we have lost, we will receive back. Everything. That we will miss nothing. And that on that day, we will be made whole. So Joel asks us the question, right, of what are we looking forward to? What are we expecting? Because what we're expecting and what we're looking forward to tells us a lot about God. If you're expecting punishment, suffering, like, boy, I expect, I know if I mess up, I'm going to get more and more of this. Oh, that tells a lot about what we think of God. Do you look at God as a God who is eager to punish and condemn his people, who gives blessings only to those who deserve it? Or do you look at God as a father who has only good for his children, who disciplines us, who lets us suffer because he loves us, and who has turned our suffering into a vehicle for knowing him, into a vehicle for experiencing peace and glory, and who has secured for us an inheritance that can never be removed. In the midst of our suffering, we need to be reminded of these images. We need to be reminded of the ending of the story. Right? And this is why the New Testament ends with the book of Revelation. Right? Like, we need this. This is why the Old Testament ends with b- books like this, of Joel, to remind Israel of the ending of the story. And in the New Testament, we're reminded at the end with Revelation, because we need this. Without these pictures, right? without the belief that there is something better than this, we will either hold it too tightly Right? And it'll be that control and fear and anxiousness and worry. Or it will be this despair when we have lost everything. We will be overcome in our lamenting. Right? We will be overcome in our pain and our suffering if there is not that future day. Because otherwise, I, will, I believe, right? without this, I'll, I'll tend to believe that I will never get it back. Whatever I've lost, I'll never get back. And I've just got to figure out how to move on. Right? That's the cold comfort of the world. Look, other people have gone through this. You can get through this. There's ways to cope. We're going to help. I can, all right, I can, I can function. But if I honestly look at, if this is it, and I won't get that back, what, I, it's overwhelming, the despair. So I don't want to openly, honestly look at the pain. And if there is not this picture, if this picture isn't true, then I will be cold in my worship of God. I, I will worship him, but I will worship him in this position of fear and religion, trying to appease and earn something back and get back from him what he took from me and try to figure out why he was so, dis, so displeased with me and what I can possibly do. But I will have this distance and distance and callousness and self-righteousness that'll grow. 
If you look back in Joel chapter 2 from last week, last week there was that verse in verse 13 of Joel. In the midst of that judgment, that impending doom that was coming for them, that army that was going to destroy them, the prophet is bold enough to say, right, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relents over disaster. How can we honestly say that? How do we get to a place where these words become true for us? That in my heart, I can actually say that. That the Lord is gracious and merciful. That he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. How do we get to a place where that becomes more than just religious lip service? We have to remind ourselves of God's promises and we have to trust him just like Israel. Because if we look at this, I mean, because the question for us is, you know, how can we be confident in this glorious reward? How do I know that day is really coming? <laughs> how could Israel know that day was truly coming when everything would come back, where we would be feasting, satisfied, and with all of the loss, the hurt, and the pain would be undone, all of those longings would finally be satisfied? I mean, how do I know that that's actually coming? How do I know that this is real? And not just a symbolic hope. Because we can be sure of this because of Jesus. Right? As this is why the New Testament right, comes right after this. And this is why Revelation points back to the Gospels. Because if we believe in Jesus who took what we deserve so we could have the heaven and the glory that he deserved. That phrase here, everyone on that day, in that day, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. We suffer. In this life, we will suffer. We suffer all kinds of suffering. It's real, and it hurts. We've suffered loss and betrayal. We've suffered death. We've suffered broken bodies. We have suffered unfulfilled hopes. We, we will suffer, and we suffer, and it's real. But because of Jesus, it's just a shadow. that the suffering that we experience now because of Christ has lost all of its power. It's lost its sting. Because Jesus truly died, because Jesus was truly crushed by his suffering, the weight of the suffering that Christ endured, I mean, it crushed him. It literally crushed him. And if we believe in him, now the only thing that can come over us is the shadow of death which turns out to be the entrance into glory. We still experience suffering. We still experience this pain. We still experience death and loss. But it's just a shadow of the real death and the real loss that Jesus encountered for us. If the death of Jesus Christ happened for us, if he bore our hopelessness so that now we can have hope, and if the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happened, then the worst thing will turn into the best things. This is what Paul says throughout Corinthians, right? The, the worst becomes the best. It's foolishness to the world. But if Christ truly died and truly rose, all of this suffering turns into glory. Our suffering and Israel's suffering is real. This isn't an illusion. This isn't Buddhism. Right? This isn't some kind of religious 
ideal of, you know, stoicism, or if like you can just kind of man up, woman up enough to handle this really, really well, suffering becomes just not even a thing anymore. I don't even, I can, I'm so strong in my hope and in my faith that I don't even suffer. No, that's not, Israel's really suffering. We're really suffering, and we have to be honest with that. That's where the, the prophet calls us out to remember it, to look at it, to speak of it, to call an assembly, to fast and to weep in it, because suffering is real. And we need to see it. We need to see it honestly. But while we can see it and while we weep in it, we're not overcome by it because Christ was overcome by it for us. We can look at our suffering and we can still find joy and peace because the reality, right, this truth, this reality that Joel points us to of this new heaven, new earth that's been secured by Christ gives us a peace. It gives us hope that everything really will be all right. So for us, where is God calling us to trust him more? Where where is he calling you to find hope in him? Because we're all finding hope somewhere. We're all suffering. That's pretty clear. That's very biblical and just experiential. We suffer Where do you turn to for your hope in the midst of your suffering and your loss? Do you look to the hope that awaits you? Are you looking to this day? Are you looking to the hope that Christ has secured for you? Or are you looking to a lesser cheapened hope in your life now? Look to the risen Christ. In the midst of our pain and our suffering, we have to look at Christ, and know the future, the good, glorious future that he has in store for us. We need to honestly weep in the midst of our pain and our suffering and worship God because he is good. If Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said did and rose from the grave, he is good. I can now honestly look at my pain and my suffering and I can speak to myself and say, right, return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. Because he does and he did. Can you honestly say this about God? Can this be your prayer? Can you honestly worship God for being gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love, and that he relents? Or do you view him still as an angry God who punishes you? Hear his voice. What would it take for you to be able to honestly approach him in your midst of your pain and your suffering? Not to minimize the pain and the suffering, but to still be able to approach God in your pain and your suffering? What would it take to be able to do that? What lies are you believing about God that you need to give up? What truth of the gospel do you need to believe that you could actually worship him even in the midst of horrible pain and loss and suffering? Hear his voice. The voice that says to us, because we are in Christ, right? This is my child in whom I am well pleased. There is no condemnation for you. I took your punishment on me. 
I've given you life, and I'm giving it to you abundantly. Fear not. Be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God. Hear that voice. I will restore to you what the locusts have eaten. Because for many of us, we just feel like, right, we'll just never get those years back. We'll never get that back. I, it's gone. It's not. Nothing is gone because of the new creation that awaits. Nothing. Everything will be waiting for us. Look to Christ, to the suffering and dying in our place and rising to secure for us this glorious future. So in the midst of our suffering, the prophet Joel and all the scripture is calling us to be honest with it, but to have hope. To have hope in the midst of suffering, to seek Christ. And as Paul would say in Colossians, right, to really let the peace of Christ rule our hearts. I know that there is pain and there is suffering. And I know that there is hope because of Jesus Christ. Again, Christianity is so unlike every other religion, every other philosophy. Every other religion and philosophy tells you, prepares you to deal with the loss of the happiness, right? Like you're sitting in happiness now. Suffering is coming. Here's how to deal with it. Christianity offers us hope and glory and peace in suffering. And glory is what awaits us, not the opposite. Look to that future hope. Meditate on it. If you're overly comfortable with this life, you think this is as good as it could get, you've got to give that up and see that it's going to get better, which is actually hard to do. For me, that's actually very difficult because I really enjoy what I've got. And the thought that it's going to be better, but it's not going to be my, I'm not going to own it then, <laughs> that I'm going to get my kids back, but they're going to be my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to get my spouse back, but she's going to be my sister, not my spouse, that I'm going to get... I, I don't like that idea because I like what I have and I want it and I want to have it now. And then fear and control and anxiousness, right, take over. Look to the future glory that awaits you and be eager for it and see how God is working that out and calling us to it now. Let the peace of Christ rule in our heart. The hope of restoration, right? We need this picture because it helps us to honestly weep Right? If I know that that better is coming, I can weep at true loss now. I, I can see it. It really is painful to lose now, to have pain and suffering. But I also find hope, and I can honestly worship God at the same time. Let me pray for us.